0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This
2: phone is that. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go. On. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well,
3: yeah, you can laugh, I'll have
0: to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want
4: to be like me. Well, do you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like like to stay alive. Right, now. Okay, I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. you now. I'm down to and we'll see them, won't What you doing down here, yes, you're man. <laughs> I
0: feel a little bit sorry for whoever has to follow Duncan Ferguson as the next Everton manager. Even if it ends up being Wayne Rooney, he's just not going to get the fans. He's not going to understand what the club is all about like Big Dunk does. I can see it now. Rooney's press conference before his first match, he'll say something along the lines of, You know, those players, they should run themselves into the ground. Imagine if you asked a fan to put on a shirt and get out on the pitch. What would they do? Well, my players need to do that. Then it thumped the table with his rallying call, only to be informed that Dunk's already used that line, mate. All right, then, says Wayne. I'll just go out and buy the fans a drink on the morning of the game. I mean, he hasn't done that, has he? Uh, fortune. he might have. Welcome to the Football Podcast. Hi, Ken. Hi, Murph. Hello, how hey, are how's you? How's it going? The Winslow Hotel on Goodison Road tweeted on Saturday. Massive big, th- massive big thanks. <laughs> that's a really huge thanks to the legend that is Duncan Ferguson for buying all our customers their first drink this morning. First drink this morning, amazing. It was an early. I was going to
5: say it's kickoff, <laughs> wasn't it? I mean, I keep calling yeah. it the,
0: the breakfast kickoff, and you guys keep slaving. me See, for, that's clever it? by Big Dunk. You know, would he have done that if it was a five thirty kickoff? Yeah. And who knows how much money would have gone behind the bar? In this case, he knows there's not much time. Just get, just get a little bit behind the bar. That'll be enough to. Get everyone there one drink pre-match anyway amazing generous gesture that's a measure of the man mm. come on you blues this is followed by claims claims that the former Scotland striker had done the same thing nearby at the brick on County Road so it seems like dunk Going. Is it too cruel to suggest his players did play against Aston Villa like the fans would have done if they were out there after <laughs> having their free drinks? It is too cruel, Murph. They weren't that bad, but they were bad enough to lose the game. And it leaves them, what is it, four points now off the relegation zone? I don't want Everton to get relegated. I kind of like when these big teams get into these, you know, it's kind of fun, funny to watch for a while when a big team gets in trouble. And it's like, they couldn't possibly, are they too good to go down? But I don't know, I just... Uh, none of us have seen it in their lifetimes uh, a, a Premier League or a First Division without Everton in there. So you know, let's arrest this slide while we can, lads. That's my rallying call.
5: You better get so. your finger out right and make sure that you get the fucking mm. results. Oh, I mean, a rallying call is all been good, but how many drinks have you put behind the bar at the Goodison Lane Hotel? Zero. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the question.
3: Like Ferguson is is sort of uh, to to watch him in action, and obviously he's kind of he's playing to you know pandering a bit to the to the fans or whatever. But I think he understands who he's speaking to a bit better than you know Farhad Mushiri does. You know Mushiri actually uh, put out a big statement towards the end of uh, last week, um, because you know he kind of he he somehow managed to detect that all was not well in the Everton family. <laughs> there were some he somehow he was able to pick up some rumblings of discontent, and mm-hmm. uh, he put out a statement uh, which includes the line. I'm a private man and I do not speak publicly very often. To which, having read the statement, having laboured, battled my way to the end of this statement, I, I, can, I can say, the only thing I can think of to say is, thank God, thank God you don't speak very often. Because this is the most droning, like just dull. Like, I, this, it goes on for so long and it's just so much boring business speak. I mean it's not, like he has got some some major headline items here. You know, the club has announced today the conversion of a one hundred million pound loan to the club into equity, which is a clear demonstration of my commitment and greatly strengthens the balance sheet. You know it sounds
0: like the kind of thing the fans would like.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's big, you know, but but and yet it just gets lost amid all this, you know, we're working on key projects, you know, strategic reviews, recruitment process, you know, working together, blah 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 the financial acumen of one of the most respected finance directors in football. Um, You know, you're just like, God Almighty, this guy, like, is this really the best that he could do? So compared to this, like, uh, Duncan Ferguson, sort of the fans can do whatever they want. If the fans want to surround Bill Kenwright and scream at him in the car park, that's fine. It's their club. (laughs) you know, if they want to pelt Austin Villa players with missiles, you know, who am I to say
0: they shouldn't do that? <laughs> confronting Bill Kenwright boozed up on Duncan's free booze. Yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah. Well, you I'm know, but it's, it's, behind me pocket yet, Bill, and I'm still out me box.
0: Duncan Ferguson
3: is right about about this. Like, it is the, you know, it, it is the fans club. I mean, this is this is kind of what's been missing from the way that Mushiri runs it. The news today that that Vitor Pereira could be the next Everton manager. And we're going to talk to, to Patrick Boyle of the Atlantic a bit later on. You know, just the idea that, like, they could appoint Vitor Pereira um, to take over. Like, if they did that, honestly. Like, well, why?
0: I don't, even, I don't even know this guy, really, to be honest.
3: Well, he usually gets linked with the Everton job whenever it comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> he's a, a Portuguese manager in his, like, late 50s, I guess. He's won the, the league uh, with Porto. Not a lot of people don't, to be fair. Uh, He's won the league with Olympiakos in Greece, which, again, you know, you have to kind of go out of your way not to win the league with Olympiakos. He has also won the league with Shanghai SIPG in China, which I think uh, is his longest stint anywhere out in in Shanghai. Um, He, you know, most recently managed Fenerbahce, was sacked after six months. He's managed also uh, 1860 Munich, Al in Saudi Arabia. That's a uh, Saudi Arabia, likely not Egypt, likely Santa Clara, Espina, various other jobs in Portugal. And it just sort of is like, wow, like why would we seriously like <laughs> what? <laughs> why would we hire? What what is it about this guy's record that makes it makes us think? You know, he would be a good person to hire at this point. All that winning it just.
5: Too much winning? Would Everton get tired of winning under this serial winner?
3: I don't know. I don't know if there's enough... um, I don't know if there's really enough there. Um, It seems as though there's a real kind of tone deafness with the Mm -hmm. Everton regime. You know, they just kind of... They just managed to get it wrong the whole time. I mean, what they, you know, it's, it's funny, like there's, a, there's an article, there's an article about Pereira, one of the reports is not you know, the Daily Mail's report mentions today, serial winner Vitor Pereira emerges as a major contender for Everton job is the, is the headline. But uh, there's a <laughs> the line that made me laugh is, uh, Everton figures are understood to have previously considered the left field appointments of Maurizio Pochettino, Ralph Hasenhuddle, and Graham Potter all of which had no Premier League managerial experience at the time, but all went on to build strong sides in England. And see the merits in mirroring that approach. I'm like, what? Everton nearly hired <laughs> Pochettino, Hasnuttle and Potter. It's like the way they nearly signed Andy Robertson, Harry Maguire and Erling Haaland. The, you know, the, <laughs> like no team has, apart from like Spurs when they nearly signed Rivaldo or whatever, has, no team has got a, uh, a list of nearly signings as as
0: good as everything. I
2: well, think.
3: except
0: for the Republic of Ireland national team, of course.
2: Do you well, well, De- so Washington,
0: well. Declan Rice once again stride around Old Trafford uh, uh, the other day. Well, the th- the thought I mean,
3: did occur. Wasn't quite enough, was it, of course? No. no. When, Poor when, Ricey. When make
0: it? Is that not kind of like... a Bit of
3: a
5: weird thing to be saying that, like we looked at all of these three guys who have gone on to be really good managers, but did
0: not hire them. Did it's not, another yes, way. Re- it re- is, it another is another a way of strange way that. to big up yourself. Yeah. Well, I think
3: the you know the the implication there, and I and you know again, that's a sort of uh, maybe maybe briefed information or whatever. But the but the implication appears to be, look, you know. Uh, it's like the, the, the next is Arsenal famously plucked Arsene Wenger, one of the greatest English top flight managers in history from Japanese football. I mean, in fairness to Arsene Wenger, like he had previously been uh, battling it out with Olympic Marseille, uh, who, t- who at the time in the early 90s were kind of one of the highest profile teams in Europe, you know, twice uh champions league or european cup finalists uh they did win the european cup scandalously then you know they were involved in various corruption uh, allegations but wenger was like their you know they were ferguson and he was wenger in this you know <laughs> you know what i mean uh it wasn't as though like he he had been completely unheard of like he he didn't they lose the cup winners cup final as well uh his monaco team um you know, Glenn Hoddle had been out there playing for Hurst and Vengers. So it wasn't as though, you know, oh, there's this guy in Japan, you know. Mm. He's like he lives in a forest. You know, like the snow <laughs> monkeys or whatever. <laughs> like mm. He he sits in a he sits in a, I swore in a I'd never spring go back. pool.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, and he's just he's taking a vow of silence. It's not like that. You're like he was he was in Japan for like a few months. Anyway, um they seem to be suggesting that Vitor Pereira could be uh could be a figure along these lines, you know. <laughs> I, I think Everton supporters might think, Hang, haven't we already had Marco Silva? I mean, he's been at many of the same clubs. You know, <laughs> this is crazy. Like, are we really going to do this again?
0: Um, but look, let's not prejudge things. Let's not prejudge things. we will talked to Patrick about that in a little while. Here's a heads up for all you Monday-only listeners. You guys are missing out on the full David O'Darty isolating experience. Get him while you can.
1: Emer Healy writes, old Emer, she is furious because... I revealed that at the end of Marley and Me, the dog dies. I mean, Emer, there's other things to be... I mean, she's furious. She's absolutely furious. Like, all caps. I've never seen it! But it's not what the whole film is about. It's about a friendship with a pet. I mean, would you describe Jaws as a film about a shark dying? You know, is that giving a lot away? Uh, She has written a list. Films where uh, someone has given me the ending or a key aspect of the story before I got a chance to watch. Her list includes Pulp Fiction, Thelma and Louise, Sh- Shutter Island, Marley and Me, yeah, thank you, and Titanic. <laughs> oh, did you not know about the end of Titanic Ember? Did no one tell you? At the end, the ship docks in New York City and Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, they uh, have a very happy life together. They live in the Bronx and have six kids and one of them grows up to be JFK. (laughs) Sorry, ever. No,
0: Yeah, I think in fairness to to David there, Marley and Me is, I see here, (sighs) a movie from 2008, Murph, so you know we, we, we've we all fallen victim to this when yeah. listeners get annoyed when you spoil something that has been out for more than a decade i seem to recall ken getting
5: pelters for like spoiling some movie that was made in 1983 or something i think Which that was movie? last year i can't remember what movie it was either way i think if it's if it's left the cinema if you know if it's been out for over a year then you know i, I don't think you can you can have too many expectations about you know walking serenely <laughs> through life without hearing the ending of a movie, you know.
0: Every episode of David O'Darity's Isolating is available to World Service members. You can sign up on secondcaptains.com It costs five euro a month plus VAT. Right now, Ken, you're going to report on some sport.
3: Well, you know, I don't know. Have Have we reached a, an all time peak of uh, corruption allegations? Uh, in In you know, has has, has the ineptitude of VAR. Finally, um, send everyone completely insane, <laughs> broken people's <laughs> brains. Some of us predicted. Some
0: of us. Some of us suggested. Yeah, well done, done, Murph.
5: Great prediction that time. Nah, no problem. On you know me, I'm a straight
0: shooter. I always call Love it. Love your as column. I see it. Love your column in the Irish Times. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Some of us that. suggested this could,
3: prob- this could be a problem. This could be a Every Thursday. Um, I mean, there's uh, Jim Piddock of the uh, an actor, uh with the Crystal Palace Supporters Trust. CPFC should request a PL investigation into that Liverpool game. Worst VAR referee decision I've ever seen. Either VAR doesn't work and should be scrapped or there was corruption at play to try and keep the title race close. Um, that's uh, a sample of opinion on the, frankly, well, I don't know. I mean, the Liverpool uh, Crystal Palace refereeing decisions were, I thought, remarkable. You know? And I mean, is its it... Is it as you as suggest, corruption at play to try and keep the title race close. I mean, I don't know. But certainly, can I, the can I
0: put in? It sounds like I should have put in the legal qualifier at the start of this conversation, Ken. There, w- there was no actual corruption at play in any of the incidents that you are about to hear about. Now, please well, according, to,
3: according, according to you, Owen, I mean, there was no corruption at play. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, for me, I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. Sometimes I see things and I don't understand them. All.
5: You're just out there asking questions, Ken. Is that what you're? Is that what you're saying? Well, I just,
3: there's some, there's things that I don't understand when I see them. Now. Um, in in that uh, game, which was a, which was a really interesting and weird game, uh, in which it looked as though Liverpool were going to win easily, you know, maybe repeat their seven nil from from was it last season or the season before uh, at, pa- at Crystal Palace, um, but then it became apparent that they were every couple of minutes going to cough up an absolutely massive chance, and uh, at the end of it, they were lucky. Not to lose a game that at one point it looked as though they were going to absolutely um, run away with. And had, uh, as Jurgen Klopp pointed out, their goalkeeper to thank for making a bunch of saves. You know, they lost the XG, uh, but they ended up winning the game 3-1. Now, there was two very contentious decisions. One of them was Liverpool were given a goal, or the Oxford-Chamberlain goal was allowed to stand when Roberto Firmino was clearly offside as the ball comes in from Andy Robertson. To me, this clearly is an offside. It, it it is offside because uh, uh, as Robertson crosses the ball, Firmino jumps for the ball and he's he's straining every sinew to try and touch it. He doesn't touch it. It goes. It passes over his head uh, to Oxford Chamberlain, who who isn't offside, but he controls it and he scores. But the point is that the defender who could be marking Oxford Chamberlain. He's instead marking Firmino because he has to. He doesn't know whether Firmino's offside or not. Firmino is offside, but the defender's going to mark him and as a result Oxford Chamberlain is at the back, he's free and he scores. I think Firmino is interfering with play and that goal should be ruled out. For some reason, despite access to the replays, they uh, they didn't rule it out. Mm-hmm. So that was a that was a you know, certainly very favourable decision from Liverpool's point of view. Um They then, uh, you know, Palace had had sort of, were were ripping um, apart the Liverpool high line. You know, Virgil van Dijk looking very, very ponderous, I would say, uh, repeatedly getting exposed by these balls in behind. And it really did look as though Palace were going to get the equaliser that really the performance had deserved. And then, uh, right at the end, another another one of these kind of big uh, blockbuster passes from Trent Alexander-Arnold, Uh, Diogo Jota is running onto it and controls the ball then goes to take a second touch on the ball misses it uh, collides with the goalkeeper and then a penalty is awarded by not by the referee the referee says nah I don't think I think he just ran into keeper there but the referee is is then beckoned over no you know we have to look at this and blah 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 and goes over
0: and, and awards a penalty and I'm just thinking I don't really I don't see why this is a penalty I think I'm waiting on this one Kenny it's one of those ones where if the goalkeeper comes, the goalkeeper started to come out and if he continued and cleaned the player out, then that's one thing. But you can see from quite an early stage, he's trying to pull out. Contact isn't exactly, you know, too robust. And to, you're, you're always told if a decision... Is there enough there to overturn it? You know, mm. and if the decision of the referee was not to award a penalty, in the fr- sorry, I, I'm I'm actually getting that. I'm making that more complicated. It's just wasn't the penalty. Full stop. I mm. think, but you know, in the age we live in, the way the way the, the it's phrased, uh, the way we watch matches. You, you are conditioned now to think, OK, well, if a decision has been made, there has to be some really compelling evidence to overturn it. And I don't, I don't see the compelling evidence even with all the replays.
3: No, I mean, what, what it seems like to me is that, um, I mean, Jada tries to touch the ball, he misses it, and he then he, he moves into the goalkeeper. I mean, you can see he's running in one direction, then he then he kind of diverts into the goalkeeper. Now, is that part of the same movement that he's trying to, he's sort of trying to flick the ball with his toe, um, the leg just isn't quite long enough this time. Uh, and the ball gets away from him. And, you know, was that part of the movement that takes him into the goalkeeper? But, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe it is. But, like, he does take himself into the goalkeeper. You know what I mean? Like, you can see that he kind of I mean, he moves into the right. Whether he's always intending to do that or, you know, he meant to touch the ball. Who knows? But it's like... You've lost control of the ball, and now you've run into the goalkeeper. How are you going to get a penalty for that, really? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some of the decisions, I mean, it, it, he, he, I'm sure, would say, well, you know, uh, I was knocked down in the penalty area against Tottenham, and nobody gave a penalty, so now I've got one that was some, you know, generous. Uh, it evens out. It's fair. But it's, it's, it's just nonsense. Like, it's just, it's just absolute nonsense. But then, you know, you see, uh, I mean, I also saw last night that the Chelsea-Tottenham game, mm-hmm. the bizarre spectacle of Gary Neville, just repeatedly insisting that is not a foul over footage of Harry Kane blatantly
0: pushing no, Jago Ken, Silva in the I back. I want to disagree. I, I I want to disagree with you on one of these, but I can't <laughs> manufacture any outrage <laughs> it here.
5: It makes uh, the podcast much better if one of us disagrees. But unfortunately, I know, he but people is people right see it, through. They
0: see through it if it's yeah, fake and if it's just yeah, no. Right. I disagree with that. So I, I have to be honest. I could not believe, and I didn't see Roy Keane post match. Apparently, Keane agreed with Neville. Did he? I'm not sure. No, could, uh,
3: Keane said. Well, uh, believe it or not, Gary's wrong. Uh, ah, so okay, uh, you know he didn't he didn't agree with that particular call, but like I mean, it was
0: a clear it's a clear push. Like I mean, you it was a push, and you know you could say uh, the usual. Keno, like Kino like, uh, did also
5: say uh, when he saw Harry Kane still giving out to the referee at halftime, it's like, well, Harry should keep talking to him. You know, he's the England captain. So he might they might change his mind eventually. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was pretty good,
2: to be
0: fair. <laughs> it is funny how much of how much of when people watch something the reaction can be conditioned by that initial what the co-commentator is saying. It kind of depends who the co-commentator is, but when it's Neville and someone with, with his sort of heft and he's immediately shouting it down, that it, it becomes a scandal, you know, when it mm. shouldn't be really. If and if he had reacted a bit more calmly then maybe it wouldn't have wouldn't have blown up because I, I couldn't I couldn't believe there was such a big thing made of this when the defenders clearly pushed over and maybe you could say is making the most out of it. But in fairness, they're both running quite fast. When you get a push at that at that speed Probably are going to fall over. Yeah, come on.
3: You know, he he pushed him just to get him out of the way, and then he then he scored a goal in the space that he'd created by the push. So yeah, I mean that's a foul. So um, yeah, ultimately, uh, the game. I thought the Chelsea Spurs game was very disappointing. Really, it wasn't. Like I don't think Chelsea Chelsea obviously won quite easily. Didn't really play that well. Um, nice goal by Ziyech. Lukaku again, pretty bad. Uh, Kane though wasn't wasn't really much better. Uh, Although he didn't have too many chances to to really influence the game. But look, again, it it was part of, I I felt that a lot of the football was a bit disappointing this weekend. Um, Yeah. And and a lot of it, you know, came back to these these decisions. I mean, the Man United-West Ham game. We do have an email uh, today from Kevin. I mean, again, and we're talking about like how this is how everyone's gone insane, right? Because of the bar. I'm sorry, Kevin, but I think you might have gone insane. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm not again, I'm not sure. It's just that when you see when someone actually goes to the goes to the extent of, of, of getting a freeze frame and then overlaying a bunch of graphics on the freeze frame with like he draws angles. his own lines.
5: Kent. Come on, let's not beat around the bush. <laughs> That's what's happened here. He's drawing his
3: own (laughs) line. Well, what he's saying is that the VAR the VAR line is fake. So this is the this is the Marcus Rashford goal, right? And uh, Rashford scored uh, uh, from you know it's Martial to Cavani, Cavani across the goal, and Rashford at the far post sticks it in, and that's a a late winner for Man United against West Ham. And poor old Declan Rice is crying his heart out. And it's it's very sad. Declan Rice sad. was
0: the best player by a mile. It's very sad for Declan Rice. For you oh, you oh, know, poor. to have
3: to have given so much, you know, and to end with nothing like that. It really must have been a really ashen feeling for him. <laughs> but
5: uh, you've always got to play well when you put on the Irish show. But
3: uh, Kevin isn't concerned about that. What he's concerned about is the scandal of this, um, of the fact that VAR allowed this this disgrace to stand. Um, you can draw comfort from the fact that Pythagoras' theorem can be relied upon 100% of the time to inform you as to the dimensions of the same right angle, triangle that is. Using basic trigonometry, it is possible to establish from a football still where the VAR line should be drawn by reference to the other lines on the pitch and known dimensions of same where the line should be drawn is also a function of where precisely the camera is in the stance, How high up it is, how far back from the touchline, and what longitudinal point relative to the touchline it's located okay to at. Using basic trigonometry, I've clearly established that not only was Cavani offside last Saturday night, but well off. This is because, based on the dimensions of the pitch presented to us, uh, the still in which, on, on the still on which the VAR line was drawn, it can be calculated that the VAR line should have been drawn at an 85 degree angle to the short side of the nearest line in the small parallelogram. We can safely <laughs> assume this is a straight line. Instead, it is apparent to me for the first time that VAR lines are being drawn with limited reference to the spatial reality in the ground. There appears to be a high degree of arbitrariness about it. This is even before we get into the questions whether the ball has actually left contact with Martial's foot when the still is taken. In any event, even if my analysis were at two to three degrees, it's still not getting back on side, and it really begs the question of how a line at 78 degrees can be justified based on the trigonometry they can't hide from it's a stitch up lads united are probably the most watched team in the world it's not good for the pl for them to be languishing mid-table and at least not challenging for top four conspiracy theory only if you were somebody who still thinks kennedy's fatal shot was fired from the book depository watch oliver stone's new documentary on sky
2: well i haven't actually, watched I, I have, new
5: documentary. I, I have watched it yeah i, I watched have it you? last I, I watched it last week i did yeah four parts is it good? Uh, <laughs> you know what? I expected it to be even more unhinged than it was. Really? Uh, not, not, I would say pretty unhinged. I mean, if you're asking me right now, Ken, if you're putting me on, on the spot, Lee Harvey Oswald, the sole yeah. assassin on Dealey Plaza that day, 22nd of November 1963? Mm-hmm. Not for me. No. Nah. Not for me. Not for no. me. For me, so. we're talking at least two teams of shooters. One in the maybe not even Harvey Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald at all. He was sure yeah. he was in the book depository at the time, but did did he actually have time to get down the back stairwell? I don't think so, Ken. I don't uh, think right. so. Yeah. Okay. I don't think so. You're talk- I'm talking about a team of shooters behind the uh, at the grassy knoll behind the picket fence.
3: Has he taken it on uh, from? From his early '90s smash hit uh, movie uh, JFK, which I have watched, uh, not in many years, but I have mm. watched it back into the left, back, which I, into which the as far left. as I know, actually doesn't stack up in terms of physics. Right.
5: I'll answer the first part of your question first, which is mm-hmm. to say that in the aftermath of the release of 19, of uh, JFK, director Oliver Stone, 1992, mm. uh, the U.S. Congress reopened an investigation and there were multiple documents opened at that time and also of course by former President Donald J. Trump
1: but a can of soup you can really put some power into Uh, that he eh? opened
5: a few uh, files as well so um, yeah new shit has come to light again Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of a lot of ifs a lot of buts a lot of what have yous in this case yeah Um, but maybe, maybe you know, we could do a deep dive with Oliver Stone for uh, Ken's next politics podcast. That'd be good. Well, new
0: shit has come to light here via Kevin, Ken. And I, I think, I, I hope by this stage we have tweeted the still that Kevin has drawn up for uh, us here. Yeah, because no, this conversation be is going to make a lot more sense if you can just pause the podcast and look at what he has. He's gone to, into such detail that he has the line that VAR drew and then his own line, what VAR should have drawn, which very clearly places Cavani offside before he passes to Rashford.
3: VAR drew uh, a a line at at 78 degrees and it should have been drawn at 85 degrees, you know, and based on the angle of ACD, BDC and distance between YZ and angle of line at WH player foot, YZD, should be drawn at 85 degrees. So the evidence is incontrovertible.
5: Do you take in the curvature of the earth though? (laughs)
3: That's the question. (laughs) The The only thing we don't have is answers from from, the, from, you know, the, the refereeing body as to how they can stand over this. this Johnson. So maybe once that gets out on social media, they'll be, they'll
0: be forced to... Uh to think like if Kevin is due here, that one did look offside when it all seemed to happen so fast. It was just, you know, yeah. Old Trafford going absolutely jubilant mm. and you're thinking, well, was there, was there maybe an offside in the, the first replay before any lines get drawn? The eye test, Ken, told mm. me, Cavani's offside there. Looks mm-hmm. like he's yeah. off. Yeah. Uh, then once the lines eventually did come out, they had had it drawn in whatever way they draw it. We need a very whistleblower. whistleblower.
5: That's what we need. We need a very whistleblower. Someone yeah. deep inside Ver to come out yeah. and blow the lid off this conspiracy. Stop the
3: steel! Stop the well look, you know, it's it's the um you know it's it's one of the oldest of all of the conformity experiments, you know, Solomon Ash. Right? So you remember Solomon you remember Solomon Ash. Uh Owen? Uh, <laughs> <not>. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had the uh, the the experiment. I mean, he used lines very much like the lines drawn by uh, by Var. And basically, I've the, done
5: uh, my own lines. Basically, idea, this, this is the, the new <laughs> line. Now, this is the, this,
3: the idea yeah. was that I've done my
0: own lines. <laughs> the, the idea was that this that is the Polish American guy, Ken, the psychologist and, and pioneer in social psychology. That, that, I didn't, that's all he is.
3: Pioneer in social psychology. I wasn't yeah. aware that he was Polish.
0: Yeah, he did. Um, I mean, he was the one who did all the impression formation. Conformity, yes, the conformity. Conformity. yes, of course. Well, well, that's yeah, p- yeah I, no, I know Solomon Ash yeah. So, so the deal, basically, with the
3: Ash conformity experiment, is that you're there in a um, a room. The the person who's being experimented on unwittingly, the unwitting subject, is there. They probably know they're part of an experiment. They don't realize they're the only subject. Uh, all of the other people in the in the class with them are actually confederates. In the word we use in social psychology experiments, uh, co-conspirators, plotters in league with the in league with solomon ash and so and the teacher comes in and basically there's there's a bunch of lines on the board and like you know a b and c and like you know they're all different lines or they're different sort of lengths right sort of say a is five feet long b is six feet long and c is four feet long right they're kind of clearly different and then you know there's there's another uh line which is which is like five feet long right so it's the same length as like line a and you can, you can it's the sort of thing where you can actually see it clearly you know it's not like oh i'm not sure you can sort of see very clearly what it is uh, but then everybody starts basically giving the wrong answer like the the teacher's mm. like oh you know what what line do you think is the same length as the one you know in the example and uh, everyone sort of say oh you know it's line it's line b or whatever so the question is if 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 all of the confederates are giving the wrong answer how many times is the person going to Go along with what their eyes are telling them, and again, this is this is kind of a clear one. This isn't as complicated as is Cavani offside. Like, I mean, that's at least debatable. This is like obvious, and the answer is that you know, in about a third of cases, they'll just be like, "Yeah, okay, I agree, <laughs> I, I agree with it. I, I think that's right." So, you know, this is the way it is. Once they once you see the line and people saying, "Oh, this is the this is the way it is," then there's a there's a powerful tendency to go, "Yeah, you know, I see the line." seems fair let's move on Mm. and uh and you know that's what these that's what these folks are relying on owen that's it that's that's what they're relying on so it's uh you know it's a sad it's a sad state just what is it two years after var was introduced two or three years after var was introduced you know we're already at this point where like the you know the mask has fallen you know and we, we we're we're face to face with what with the reality of of the corruption that rules football is that is that where we're at not corrupt decisions, continue.
0: <laughs> Wasn't for
5: the likes of Kevin, you know, how much longer would this have would this have gone on for, you know? But now that yeah, it's out yeah. in the open, uh, Kevin's yeah. released it in a timely fashion. Uh, we got first dibs. But this has the potential to blow the bloody doors off this entire VAR <laughs> fiasco.
0: Back
4: and to the left.
0: We've got more uh, correspondence on your Man City article, Ken. Oh. This sounds like something that I might have said la- this time last week but no, it's continued. Non- Non-World Service members might not realise that this went right through the week. Yeah. and
3: It's not just Stu Brennan and the Manchester Evening News. Uh, there's more. Uh, listeners have been emailing in as well uh, and people have been writing various pieces about Manchester City. You know, just what is it about them that's so boring? It doesn't make any sense. So... Uh, first of all, uh, City played against Southampton over City weekend and dropped points uh, and Guardiola gave this uh, magnificent. Just despite
5: you just despite you, Yeah, uh,
3: despite <laughs> because yeah you know, Well Guardiola was was in magnificent form uh, after the game. Responding to Sky's interview Patrick Davison um, as I'm sure you've already seen the clip, but in just in case, here he goes.
4: How do you feel about the point tonight?
2: Most uh, standing game prepared really well, and uh, unfortunately, the first action, we considered a goal, but we, were, we made one of the best performances of the season.
1: Really? That good? You thought it was one of your best performances of the season? By far.
4: What makes you say that? What did you like about it?
5: Everything.
3: So that's Guardiola, yeah, very happy with the performance. Um,
5: what I loved about it most was the, the lean into the microphone to say, by far, uh, like, like he was appearing in front of the US Senate. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah but you know it's it's like it's again you know it's it's frustrating obviously for Guardiola always for to, to be judged on results you know you can see a similar sort of thing from say Frankie de Jong the Barcelona player uh who scored the late winner for them yesterday uh yesterday evening uh and saying after the game yeah you know I scored the goal so everyone's going to say I played well it isn't really like that I mean he didn't go as far as to say actually I played pretty badly Uh, But, you know, he goes, you know, I haven't always been. It's it's great when you score because everyone's like, oh, he's good. Karen Benzema saying the same thing recently, actually. Like, uh, yeah, we don't even look at what players do in the field anymore. It's just like, did he score? If so, then tick. If not, you know, why is this clown still? Get this clown out of my club. So um, I guess that's what Guardiola is talking about there. In reality, it wasn't that good a performance from City. I mean, it certainly wasn't by far one of their best performances, uh, I would say, of the season. I think I've seen them play a lot better than that. Um, But uh, to these responses, one Mm -hmm. came in from Bill Timmy, which I thought was interesting. Um, As someone who has uh, a master of science in industrial system optimization, what we are witnessing in Man City is so similar to the principles of scientific management which have revolutionized industrial efficiency over the past 100 years that it cannot be coincidental. I've wondered often over the years why the lessons learned in industry didn't transfer to football sooner. At the core of this industrial transformation has been the suppression of chaos by the continuous removal of variability this was really started by ford in the 1920s but taken to a new level by taiichi ono as head of toyota later in the century the core aim was to drive reliability and profitability by reducing variability in the manufacturing process um No accident between 1950 and 2000, Toyota went from being a small-time Japanese car manufacturer to being the biggest in the world, producing the best-built cars in the world, as the ad went. It strikes me, Pep has produced the best-built team in the world, with a similar focus on surgically identifying and removing components of variability, chief of which is letting your opponent have the ball. Toyota have a whole improvement system called the Toyota Way, since aped by every other car manufacturer. Uh, it recognises the human as being one of the main components of variability. It sets out to reduce this by implementing what is known as standard work. Every factory factor worker, every clerical worker, even manager, has a tightly prescribed way of doing each task, which can only be changed by a formal continuous improvement process. Poor Grillo,
0: like. That was exactly <laughs> what I was
3: thinking. <laughs> 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 That's exactly it. Poor I'll gets the ball out by the touchline. Just give me the, the ball to drop- get
5: out of the way all the, the rest of your clouds. <laughs>
3: Is he going to drop the shoulder? Is he going to ghost inside? Or is he going to pass the ball back to Joao Cancelo, his main man? Uh, One huge benefit is that, as well as driving variability down, each worker can easily be replaced by another as each role is so tightly defined and documented. This whole dynamic of standardization and interchangeability is so clear in the way Pep sets up his team. It leads to predictability, but also a sense of boredom. In a manufacturing context, boredom is good. Boredom is a good thing, as it signifies a stable process. This boredom is what Pep is really looking for, as it indicates the system is working. I believe it is this you've been striving to identify recently. As a contrast, it strikes me, Klopp prefers to promote chaos and trains his team, psychologically and technically, to embrace it. There's a lot more to be written, but the parallels are inescapable. Um... The thousands of books and dissertations have been written on Toyota's approach. It's far deeper than what we have summarized here, incorporating human psychology, intrinsic motivation, systems theory, statistics and variability. But I wager if one looks closely at Guardiola's bookshelf, a well-worn copy of The Toyota Way is to be seen. Take it easy. I thought that was really interesting, Bill. Um why has why have these industrial lessons not been learned uh, by football sooner? Boredom
5: I, is good, is not the sort of thing that's gonna, you know, sell too many tickets
3: yeah well I, I, I think maybe it's because of all of the people who um, until quite recently were involved in playing and coaching football were escapees from uh, this uh, fordist industrial process that you describe they literally were the the ones who were able to escape the factories and uh, and you know get paid to play or coach football. Were they interested in in uh, <laughs> making the football environment a bit more like the industrial <laughs> one? No. Uh, but now, of course, you've got people like Ferran Soriano involved. You know, all he does is go around having lunch with people. You know, he doesn't actually have to do this stuff. Uh, but is he going to apply these principles? Sure he is. Um, is he going to make City more successful? uh well it does you know maybe if if this is what's if this is at the root of Guardiola's success then i guess uh, it won't be long before other people start to uh copy it um what else okay so we got another one here from uh, uriah kriegel who says hello second captains cc jonathan wilson don't know why he's cc'd uh but anyway i'd like to float a hypothesis about man city and emotion that would peps mad genius creation elicits his intellectually conditioned emotion. Hmm, okay. Uh, Some years ago, I was staring blankly at an Anselm Kiefer artwork in a museum and I couldn't get it. We've all had that experience, not necessarily with Anselm Kiefer, but you know, before in our lives, I'm sure it's not a foreign experience. Then my wife started explaining to me various things. She managed to unlock for me the beauty and intensity in the piece. I could feel my awe and admiration at the artwork slowly gathering and then finally boiling over in ecstasy. This is an example of intellectually conditioned emotion. I feel something similar happens with City. You have to appreciate how, in the attacking phase, when Cancelo joins Rodri in defence midfield while the central defender spread out left. The 4-3-3 seamlessly transforms into a curious 3-2-2-3 and how when De Bruyne or Bernardo joins the false nine in the defensive phase, the thing then transforms seamlessly into a 4-2-4. I've never actually seen 3-2-2-3 or 4-2-4 before and I've never seen a team metamorphose in live action so seamlessly. Trying to track how this octopine football team rearranges itself in space unlocks for me a kind of intense aesthetic emotion, but there's a lot of proprietary intellectual work that goes into it. I can't expect to be passively hit on the head with it. Just a thought, Nerd you Nerd right.
0: Yeah. You know, I have an image in my head of a clip I saw of Diego Maradona last week mm. in some sort of an exhibition or training scenario where he kept hitting the post and you, you realise after a while he was deliberately doing it there's a goalkeeper mm. there and he's just making the goalkeeper move left and right kicks five goals five shots against the post from a distance and then at the end just chips the goalkeeper to take the piss out him, which he seems to do and uh, all of these clips of Maradona in training always end with him chipping, chipping the goalkeeper, the goalkeeper from laughing, yeah. r- running away from the goalkeeper <laughs> exactly and the crowd you could see the crowd reaction to it. Maradona being the ultimate footballer who makes you feel something you don't have to think about it you don't have to be told why the, you, you should feel a certain way you just do yeah. and I'm afraid that's the image that I have in my head. If if you're if you're explaining, you're losing, Ken.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, I kind of know what you mean. Like this, and there is an element of, uh, you know, um, you you're always at risk of slipping into the sort of emperor's new clothes territory. But the thing about Guardiola is that we're not talking. This isn't emperor's new clothes. I mean, the, the points are there. You know, the it's 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 not like this is just this is just bullshit. Like you know, with, 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 it's all it's all sort of talk, and actually, there's no substance there. I mean, there is obvious substance i mean this is like no no one's ever been able to 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 accumulate points like this in league football it's never it's never been done before it's like you've never seen before but you know should it should we be should we need to work so hard to unlock what's
0: so exciting about this did you feel this way with his previous teams i'm thinking of specifically barcelona were you sitting there watching messi and iniesta and javi and thinking nah this is dull <laughs>
3: No, um, no. And, and there's a couple of differences. Um, one of them is, well, the most obvious one is Messi, right? I mean, Messi Prime is, Messi as
2: well.
3: Yeah. Who, uh, you know, and uh, like Messi was doing something amazing in every game. And then there was the kind of the context of the, the rivalry with Madrid. And there was a fact, there was, the, importantly as well, I think the, the, the basic kind of the novelty of this, like um, I know that there had been, you know, this is kind of a the next stage of of sort of what Van Hal's Ajax had been doing in the nineties, or you know, the Ajax before them with with Cruyff, and you know, all the, it it's it sort of building on all that. But no one had ever seen this type of um, domination of possession before. Like it just hadn't. It, it was like wow. Like look look what they're doing here. Like nobody. Like I I still remember the kind of. All oh, that I had watching Spain against Russia in the Euro 2008. This is Spain, obviously know, Barcelona. It was, uh, uh, and this is before Guardiola took over, um, or this is it, it's the same summer that Guardiola took over at uh, at Barcelona. But Spain, uh, which was obviously built around this core of Barcelona players, were already showing this kind of a, a football that honestly I'd never seen. So Russia destroyed Holland in the previous round in that tournament and had destroyed I think it was Sweden and were like this really pacey attacking side. Now they had obviously lost to, lost to Spain themselves earlier in the tournament but they, Arshaven had come back into the team. They looked like this is going to be a very hard team to contain and they, and they couldn't get the ball off Spain. They just couldn't get the ball off them. And then what Barcelona did to Manchester United in successive or, or in you know two Champions League finals, you know, it was just like you couldn't touch them. Like you hear Rio Ferdinand talk about that. You know, for the way Rio Ferdinand talks about the experience of uh, you know he, he talks about like looking at Manu Vidic and there's they're there at Wembley going what is going on here like you can't get you know so there were this was, and yet like, that was
0: exciting, though you're saying.
3: Well, it was awesome to to see. I mean, in fairness, like, and, and it had and it had Messi like this kind of. I mean, there was a lot of people who were complaining about Spain in the 2010 World Cup winning all the games one nil. You know, it's like this is mm. a bit. It's not exactly like Brazil 1970 or whatever. You know, a lot of one nils here. Like, um, but I always felt it was a bit unfair to kind of complain about a national team in this way. Like, you know, a national team has the players that it has. You know what I mean? It's not. You do what you can with the player that the players that you've got. Um, and what they were doing, no, no international team had been able to do before, and they managed to win all those tournaments. I mean, it was it was incredible. Um, but as it's as it's gone on, here's here's there's one there's one more um, response here that I just want to mention. Go for it. Which I thought was a good one. Uh, this isn't actually an email to us, but it was a an article written by Jamie in Hamilton. response to your verbal broadside. Is it in response? Uh, just again, a, a jumping off point. <laughs> Jumping off point. Um, vanishing point. Why Pep Guardiola is football's first postmodern coach? Hmm. So, obviously, I started reading this going, is this article going to agree or disagree with me? <laughs> uh, and it turns out that largely it agrees. And and I think this is very good for... Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> <What was that, laughs> is that right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look... Um, uh, you know the thriller, the thriller minute, uh, end to end, uh, blood and thunder football, early, and many others pine for, uh, is indeed. I mean that that makes me sound kind of dumb. <laughs> that makes me sound dumb. But <laughs> every indeed, Saturday afternoon, oh. conspicuously absent from Guardiola's footballing blueprint, the often aloof but always sartorially intriguing. Catalonian. Catalan I would have gone for. Uh, and, is he and he dresses for, terribly.
5: Like, is honestly, he so
3: totally intriguing anymore? Is he just has he just got no. lazy? Like he just wears that sweatshirt
5: now. He wore combats for an entire season, like last season. And now Chino he's got the MD C or T-shirt, which, or jumper, which is Mad- Manchester. One of, the, one of the worst things I've ever seen about <laughs> it. Oh, it's terrible. Well, the journalist awesome. question said
0: intriguing, where if he didn't necessarily agree with his fashion sense, so, and you seem intrigued by it. No, too. well, I'm
5: extremely bored by it. I'm not intrigued at all. I'm just, I know that that's terrible.
3: Well, Guardiola just doesn't care. It, it is funny, actually, to see an old picture of him, um, you know, or, or old footage of Guardiola when he's wearing, like, a suit and, like, a little V-neck and he just mm. looks so kind of, you're like, whoa, Pep, you know, you, you look very formal. Like, did you have a job interview later? Or, or what? Because now he's he's just a slob. Like, he's like Brian Clough with, like, green jumper. You know, except his, he, wears a, he wears a little Black Man City sweatshirt. But all these Spanish coaches have, have sort of gone that way. Like, Luis Enrique and Xavi and Pep are all, I mean, Pep, obviously, would, would say I'm not Spanish. Um, Maybe Xavi would say he's not spanish but come on, guys. Like, it's very, very, it's very slack. But look, I've lost the thread of the thing. Yeah, okay. Um, the off and the blah, 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 bar, uh, has led Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and now Man City to a splurge of domestic and European titles. Well, domestic titles mainly. European titles, not since 2011. Over the last 13 years, and this team's radical ball possession style has received gushing plaudits for its redefining for how the game can be played. It's only now, as we enter the 14th season of top-flight Petball, you can begin to adequately interpret Guardiola's project and situate it within the wider context of mm, Okay, mm-hmm. uh, And he makes the point, um, events were previously marked by a distinct time and space are now assembled together, dislocated from their authentic locales to coexist discordantly Pollock-like on a singular homogeneous. See, he's mentioning Jackson Pollock here, you know. Who is it the pre- in the previous email? Anselm Kiefer. You know, we're getting a lot of these sort of mm. 20th century artists, you know, who, who like to splatter paint on canvas, mm. you know um you kind of again a little bit of brain work is re- is required you know you've you've got to artwork that you've got to meet halfway you know if you're not going to be like Hang on, but this is just a lot of box, isn't it? (laughs) You know, that sort of... uh, The city players no longer adhere to some archaic principle of fixedness. No more are their positions consistently identifiable. They have become blurred. Players pop up here and there. Their location's never set. Perpetual rotation negates the need for specialization. The particular becomes general. Even the truest of all English traditional positions, the number nine, is proved to be false. And compares this to the... uh, Euro 2020, sort of dispersing through space and time, happening all over. You know, it's not even happening in 2020. It's not happening in any one country. What place more apt than the great vista of disappearance itself, the desert, for this year's World Cup to be staged? All of this leaves so many of us feeling numb. As early alludes to, there is an oddness to watching City play, as if you were being hypnotized by some curious magic of the system. Mastered technicians only affordable to the controllers of vast wells of capital beguiling you with unfathomable patterns performed in accordance to algorithmically constructed heuristics. No mistakes allowed. All imperfections eradicated. See, it's Toyota again, right? Uh, In some sense, Guardiola City are the most potent of sedatives, footballing Soma for the armchair tactistocrats. At this point, (laughs) resistance seems futile. Perhaps the most vital element of Guardiola's football is that through its dominance, it reveals to us the true nature of the reality football has lost itself in. By unashamed, and this is an this is an interesting sentence. By unashamedly harnessing the power of capital to animate his meticulously codified game theoretical system, Guardiola inadvertently presents to us the gods we we too have so blindly chosen to worship. It is we who have elevated these forces to positions of apparently unassailable supremacy. That's the thing about Pep. He's a real overdog guy, isn't he? He's a real like. You know, he's not one to be like... Uh, oh, well, I think you know, this, is this is the
5: interesting thing about the Barcelona question that Owen asked you earlier. It's like, mm. he did have... Uh, obviously, you've uh, outlined how much money Barcelona spent throughout the, the noughties when talking about how, how screwed they were at, You know, at last summer. But he still did take a ton of... La Nazia graduates.
3: Well Busquets and Pedro was his first thing, you know, get 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 rid of Ronaldinho, bring in Busquets, get, you know, yeah. and Pedro. Get he tried yeah. to kick out Eto'o as well, majorly but. And but,
5: but maybe the more general point about about Barcelona as well. It's like it kind of fit into like an a narrative about that club that goes back 40 years where it's yeah. like, you know, a school of thought in that club that, you know, they can feel very superior about, but it is nevertheless the Club of Cruyff, and the, you know, the uh, a, and a club where deep and innovative thinkers about the game are actually you know, are made to feel very welcome and are you know, put up on a pedestal. And that's very different to Man City planning for five years before they hire him to then hire him and then you know, go on this historic splurge of cash as well. Like, it is just a different thing, you know. He was an unproven. Uh, 37 year old when he took over at Barcelona which is a club that he used to play for there is romance in the Barcelona story uh, even if you took Messi out of it it's still a, like a romantic story it's his hometown club etc etc and that's obviously not going to bore you as much as as the Man City uh, story even if the styles of the football are actually quite similar
3: Yeah, um, there, there's that sort of like you know, um, if he was if he was doing this with Leeds or something, you know, then everyone would be like, "Whoa, this is amazing!" But it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, we sort of expect City to have the best team, to be honest. I'm, I'm nearly finished here this is you know I haven't read the whole thing Guardiola's football is itself a system of control I'm just I think this is interesting just in terms of how it echoes the other email the players comprise a complex network capable of dismantling and reassembling itself in relation to the problems being posed each number is a node communicating collectively through hidden syntax of movements and gestures a swarm consciousness playing its own version of 5D football chess it's kind of like the previous uh, email comparing them to an octopus did you see that that film the octopus film movie on, on Netflix
0: uh, no not no. yet no
3: it's good. It's a bit weird, but interesting. I think uh, we've
0: had enough segues for now, though. So <laughs> Guardiola City. <laughs> let's come to a final point. Guardiola this city.
3: city have no spine. Spineless and soft. This used to be an insult. They are invertebrate. Spineless, dislocated from their sockets. This is a football that has moved beyond traditional notions of structure. It is post-structural. But with this phase shift comes an unshakable feeling of alienation, as if something so dear to us has been misplaced and lost. So, yeah. I mean, again, as I said, I, I feel that that uh, essay um basically agrees with me and Which is so I, I think yeah you know I, I would say good you know it's great to uh it's great to have these uh, very agreeable conversations with so many uh so many readers and listeners
2: now can we go for the goal here two 13 to one 13.
4: this is like old times at the moment
1: hurt them, kill them, injure them.
4: A row growing on the 45-meter line. This is deliberately to stop me's momentum. Have no doubt about that. When Dublin get vulnerable, they always do this, always and ever, and
0: always and ever have.
1: That was our mentality in the 80s. Hurt them, kill them, injure them. Mackie
0: D. Some something these fuckers are missing now. The killer, inst- killer instinct,
5: killer instinct. Tough denied to the act.
1: Two or three players need to be stopped. Some way, somehow, they need to be stopped. Hurt them, kill them, injure them. Killing Dublin, stopping Dublin. Certain things need, need to do to stop them, you know. There's still a chance for me, and Dublin at the moment are holding on to
4: it in an obnoxious fashion. This is ugly, ugly football. That killer,
1: killer instinct. Your purpose on this planet is to stop Dublin. Hurt them, kill them, injure them. Do anything you've got to do. They're just going to be stopped. They're going to be outplayed or they're going to be removed.
0: The last time we had the Athletics Everton correspondent Patrick Boylan on the podcast was the day after the Merseyside Derby defeat, I believe. Um, Pretty toxic atmosphere then, Patrick, and despite a few high-profile departures in the meantime, uh, things haven't exactly improved over the last number of weeks.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I I guess you could say that I take... Take my time, and I pick my moments as to when I, when I come on. It always, always seems as though when I speak to you guys, Everton are in a crisis. I suppose
0: that's, and fair to say, it's probably our fault. I'm sure Everton fans <laughs> will note that we're, yeah, we're we're dragging you on after these things. But it just, they, they, they just, I think, are one of the most interesting clubs at the moment. In particular, it was just there's just such toxicity around it at the moment, and I don't really know the way out. I mean, I guess the obvious one is just give the job to Wayne Rooney, and at least there's a little bit of a feel-good factor for a while.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I I suppose there are no simple solutions right now. When when Benitez left, after basically taking complete control of most of the footballing operations at the football club, when Benitez left, it, it kind of left Everton without not only a manager, but also a director of football, a head of medical, the whole backroom staff. Uh, and a variety of other recruitment, kind of mid-management and upper-management recruitment positions. So uh, handing him complete power and then sacking him not long afterwards has just left Everton in this massive state of flux where, where basically the only people looking at the transfer market and looking at the, the new manager situation are the chairman, Bill Kenwright. Uh, more importantly and more significantly, Farhad Mashiri the owner. Mm. There's a complete lack of footballing structure at the club, which I think will harm them in the long run if if they don't sort themselves out quickly. I mean, I, I was making the comparison the other day with, with teams like Brentford and Brighton, and they are much smaller clubs than Everton in terms of history and fan base and, and stature, but they've caught up with Everton very, very quickly, despite... the the riches spent by Everton under Mishiri, simply because they are doing things right off the pitch, they're making smart decisions, they have good structures, robust structures with with accountability. So in other words, they are basically everything that Everton are not. And I think that leads us to this point now, where it is basically just complete chaos. You have have Duncan Ferguson taking charge on an interim basis, getting a response of sorts in terms of commitment, out of a group of underperforming players but the football was so basic it was basically hit and rush football looking at knock-ons and, and stuff and everything just seemed so outdated to me that um, I think we saw on Saturday that the, there needs to be an urgent solution at Everton there needs to be a new manager in situ and the right manager more importantly in situ for for the next league game which is um, Newcastle United a massive game on the 8th the eighth. Uh, yeah. Up in the northeast, so so yeah. I mean, there's a lot of work for Everton to do, and not much time to do it. Really,
3: can you to, just explain what happened with Lucas Luca Dean? Because the the last game that he played for Everton was that Merseyside derby. Uh, so that which was there, which was the early December, and evidently there was a falling out with Benitez then, and he he booted him out, I guess, or he you know he went to Villa. I mean, Dean to me. Seemed like he played to the gallery pretty well on this. I mean, I don't know what your impression is, but like he put out this statement where it was like, sometimes it only takes one person to ruin a, a beautiful love affair, or something like this. <laughs> yeah. And just seemed like mate, like you've 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 kind of escaped from a burning building here and got yourself a promotion and an improved contract, and you're making it seem as though you've been banished. You know, but like this actually suits you suits you pretty well. What do what do you make of that whole Dean situation? Why was why did himself and me fall out so badly? And is he as big a loss as some of the, you know, I mean, obviously Everton are upset to lose. What's you know, a lot of people think he's 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 a great player, but I'm not sure if he's that amazing a player.
4: Yeah, just as an extension to the the farewell note, if you if you can call it that, when he signed his new long term Everton deal in in February last year he spoke about his relationship with the club as being akin to a beautiful marriage. So he's, he's never been one to, to mince his words. He's always enjoyed using florid language in these things. Um, but that's quite a descent from February 2021 and a, a new long-term deal under Carlo Ancelotti to exiting the club in pretty acrimonious circumstances eight to ten months later. I think... The, the The big change for Dean was the appointment of Benitez and the change in style under Benitez Now to understand Dean, you need to know i suppose that after every game through his representatives and through a French national team analyst, he gets sent a list kind of predominantly of key metrics of his data and he's absolutely obsessed from a from an individual standing with create creative stats so Key chances created, some of them not particularly advanced, by the way. Key chances created, crosses, um, creative stats that that shine a light on his own individual performance. Under Benitez, he was asked to play a much more defensive role. Benitez, his main strategy basically was just to, to bunker down, to be compact, as he liked to call it, even though it wasn't particularly compact by the end and to play quickly through transitions either up to a lone striker or to the wingers in Damari Gray and Andrew Townsend. Dean is not a player that fits into that style because he's he's pretty average defensively very very good going forward but there was just no build up play there was nothing for him to to link with and as such he was, he was probably rendered pretty redundant in the system i don't from from our understanding he wasn't shy behind the scenes and telling Rafa Benitez at pretty regular intervals that he wasn't particularly fond of the role and it, at times he would do so in front of teammates, which of course riled Benitez. And I just think it all came to a head before the Arsenal game in kind of mid-December where he was, he was left out of the squad altogether at a time when Everton actually weren't well stocked, they, they had injury problems, there was a bit of COVID in camp, um, but Dean was axed altogether after this yeah. pretty heated heated argument as we understand it. The interesting thing is that because of Benitez's unpopularity at Everton, supporters after these events and the reporting of those events divided themselves into two pretty distinct camps. It was the the, the pro Lucas Dean, it was the pro Rafa Benitez, and there was almost no middle ground and for, and for us as journalists we we were very much entrenched in that that middle ground because we could see that Dean was causing a few problems behind the scenes, but that Benitez had almost completely rejected in in one sense the, the the kind of the um the comments of one of his senior players um and it just all came to a head over that period i think it was i was I was told the night that Dean was left out of the arsenal game that it was unlikely he would ever play for Benitez again. He felt so strongly about it and Benitez felt so strongly about it and the confidence had been undermined on both sides that it was basically inevitable that he would have to leave mm-hmm. in January and, and, and go elsewhere. Right. As it happens, I think he's, he's actually got a pretty good deal out of this because Everton are in freefall. Villa under Gerard, are, 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 I suppose upwardly mobile, he's playing a, a pretty attacking role as, as you saw at the weekend. Mm. And he's on improved terms. He was already on a very good deal, kind con- kind of considerably north north of a, of a hundred grand a week at Everton. Yeah, but he's improved those terms again in in joining Gaston Villa. So it's not the, the worst results in the world no. for for Luca Dean. He's living um, a dream.
3: He's absolutely living his dream. But they but Everton have already have already spent uh, the money that they that they have um, taken for for Luca Dean on a couple of new fullbacks. Um, I mean, they've they've actually they've spent thirty three million, I think, already in this window. This is in keeping with their massive spending of of recent years. So Vitali Mikolenko from Dynamo Kiev, Nathan Patterson from Rangers. So a, a Ukrainian international left back and a Scottish international right back. Now these guys might turn out to be. Good players. uh Let's wait and see. They, you know, not a lot of Everton sightings have in recent years, but this, you know, it could happen. The thing that interests me about this, though, is uh, does this mean good night, Seamus Coleman?
4: Well, interestingly, Everton have been, uh, as I think I said to you last time, Everton have been looking at a long-term successor to Seamus Coleman as, as they described it, for I'd say two to three seasons. And even Coleman has, has understood that the, there's been a need for at least somebody to challenge him for, for his place and to take minutes off his schedule every, every now and then. Um, in recent weeks, Coleman has become second choice. He's been displanted in the starting lineup by John Joe Kenny. And even after Nathan Patterson, the young right-back from Rangers, came in, Coleman was second, Patterson was third, and John Joe Kenny was first. I find that a very bizarre situation because the idea was always that Everton would have somebody to come in for the here and now and maybe have a, a long-term future at the club but that would, would contribute in the present day, would put pressure in and kind of maybe supersede Seamus Coleman over the course of a season. But for that player and Nathan Patterson to come in effectively as third choice and for the number one in that position to be a guy that they basically decided was no longer good enough for the football club in John Joe Kenny yeah, I think that almost shows you the muddled thinking mm. at Everton uh, over the last few years Kenny's been available for sale now for for a couple of years he was on loan at Celtic last year didn't do particularly well had a better loan spell at Schalke who couldn't afford him the, the year before uh, but he's uh, been uh, pretty well known in footballing so circles that he's been available and that Everton haven't fancied him um, so quite why with his contract due to so expire at the end of the season he's become the number, number one option is, is beyond me. I think it also says something now about the, the state Everton find themselves in at the moment in that they've signed players for the long term in Mikolenko, from Dynamo Kiev and Nathan Patterson from Rangers. These are guys that in Mikolenko's case in particular are going to take a while to, to get up to speed in English football. They're not players you would bank on however talented <laughs> they are and, and may be to get you out of the hole that Everton are in right now and instead Everton are looking at experienced heads, players like John Joe Kenny, Seamus Coleman, uh, even Ben Godfrey playing out of position at left-back as, as another example um, to to bail them out right now. Um, so yeah, just a, another example of the, the muddle thinking that like they spent that money early doors and from that point on, it was essential from an FFP standing that they shifted somebody and that, that somebody proved to be Luca
0: None of this muddled thinking that you describe uh, leads me to believe that they'll necessarily pick the right manager of the club, which, and you said this is the key, they have to get the right manager, but who is that? Is it, does it, does it begin and end with Wayne Rooney? <laughs>
4: um, I think Wayne Rooney is, is uh, to me at least, is becoming an, an increasingly attractive proposition.
0: Despite the lack of experience?
4: Well. I mean, I'm just looking at the, the links with the other managers right now, including Vitor Pereira, who's uh, was sacked by Fenerbahce, his last club after six months, took 1860 Munich in, in Germany into the third tier of German football. Um, he's, he's got a, quite an itinerant CV that doesn't make for great reading, particularly when you look at his recent history. That's the quality of names at the moment that Everton are, are looking at. So when you see the job Wayne Rooney is doing in the Championship and what he's done at another chaotic club with meagre with resources, I think he, he becomes, at least from my perspective, he becomes much more of a logical option. Um, whether Everton see it that way, though, I mean, he, he is in the frame. that They have spoken about him now for a number of months as being a, a potential Everton manager. Whether he will get it this time, though, I think remains to be seen. The owner Farhad Mashiri, in the absence of a director of football, um, in the absence of any real kind of recruitment structure below the, the Everton board, is basically heading things in conjunction with with agents that he knows very well, and with the chairman Bill Kenwright.
3: Well, um, the, the um, what what I mean, I, I from what I see, a lot of Everton fans are, are growing increasingly concerned that Keir Drabshin is running the club. I mean, what, what's, what's the basis of, of this? Is this just conspiracy theory?
4: Yeah, as, as I understand it, D- Drabchin was there at Goodison on Saturday, partly because he's the agent of Philippe Coutinho, who obviously had just signed for, for Aston Villa. So I understand Everton fans' and frustration over that one and the fact that he's, he's, he's kind of long advised Farhad Mashiri, the, the, the Everton owner. Um, but there was more to that than just the, the Everton ties. I mean, we've written about Jurabchin's influence on machinery now for a number of years. Whenever you look at the paperwork of deals or you have, ever you look at FA lists, when it comes to agents and transactions, Jurabchin's name appears quite prominently in, in the Everton side of the documentation. Uh, to give you an example, he was on the Arsenal side in the deal with Alex Awobi, which is obviously one of Everton's worst deals so far, on paper, in in recent years, um, also played a prominent role, as we wrote in the appointment of Benitez, other managers before. So he's been, I suppose, the best way to describe him as a long time friend and associate of of the owner. He is playing a prominent role. It's quite clear, not, not officially, not not in terms of being contracted to the club at this stage, but he is playing a prominent role, at least in terms of trying to broker some deals, suggesting names to, to his friend Mishiri. Um, and Everton fans are growing, as you say, uh, increasingly frustrated and concerned by that. I suppose you asked the question, why would they be concerned by that? Well, uh, I suppose we were speaking about robust structures earlier and accountability and, and making smart decisions. Well, is listening to, to one particular, or a powerful agent, is, is that the best way to recruit a new manager for Everton? Uh, is said agent looking after the, the interests of Everton there or his own interest well I suppose that's a, that's a question to ask um, and that, that, that leads you to the situation we're in now I suppose where you have very few people and people have made mistakes in the past looking at a new manager for Everton dude would you back them to make the, the right decision in those circumstances I'm, I'm not entirely sure
0: Patrick we'll leave it there brilliant stuff thanks a million
4: no worries. For fuck's sake
0: we, we need to get back to facts here Because there seems to be a bit of emotion it.
1: What you've just said really isn't true Well no, no. what I said I'm not saying I don't know what you're saying to be honest with you okay. Okay. I, I, all that Make if this point got, if got someone Am I on the interviewing you? street, you, you interviewed me? He's a god, he's a god He's a man, he's a guru
2: You cheeky bastard You're one you did. I've, I've heard.
1: I've,
3: I've Who did? Let me
0: finish. What happened to Chelsea? The fuck's sake. sake? Well, this is going splendidly. Everyone, put the cameras if you want. Some chat.
1: Everybody would think that the appointment of Jose Mourinho would have been a great appointment for Manchester United to win trophies. That they would win trophies under Jose Mourinho. Well, I don't think everybody would have thought that, but I think somebody who didn't know a lot about football would have thought that. What the Manchester Jose Mourinho?
2: Yeah.
0: I already mentioned David O'Darty. All episodes of Isolating with David O'Darty are available on the World Service. Any other reasons to join up? Well, possibly the fact that we'll be talking about the greatest two minutes in NFL playoff history with us, Murph, this week, on. Oh, what a weekend, Owen. What a weekend. I mean,
5: pff, we may have to do, spread it out over like three shows. US Murph parts, parts one, two and
0: three.
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Humdingers. It all came down to the kickers in all four games with time up on. You can't ask for any
0: better than that. We'll talk to you tomorrow if you're a member. If not, sure, we'll just chat to you next week, I suppose. Secondcaptains.com is the place to sign up if you're interested. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. And thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much. Chat to you soon. Back and to the left. It's that?
4: the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home,
2: they
5: never go home,
1: those boys. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to the persuade of the world outside of that.
2: That's why sport's are important.